0: being honest, it was people from another, I'm talking from when I was a youth, it was people of other generations telling me that I was not able to to do things that that generation deemed was less godly. And um, so as an example, um, I remember when we first started listening to Christian rock music. I'm not talking about Motley Crue here, okay, I'm talking about like Petra. Okay, I remember like Petra and Striper and Whiteheart, and then every, we got like uh, really cool, and we got Christian rap, and I had a T Bone album, which gangster Christian rap is the biggest oxymoron that has ever existed in the world. Um, and uh, and so I remember when all that stuff came out, and people would get so mad, and they would say, "Well, it just sounds like the world to me." The thing that always frustrated me was, well, you like gospel, and that sounds like bluegrass. Whatever it was that they were listening to, I don't care if it's the Gaithers or if it's Ricky Skaggs, but all of that stuff sounds similar to me. Like, you listen to Point of Grace. And that sounds very similar to probably what you would be listening to if it wasn't Christian. God, I hope not, but it's possible, right? And so I always was frustrated about that. It was the same with how you would dress. You don't dress like the world. Well, here's the deal. For the most part, I doubt that these 60-year-old women that were telling me I shouldn't dress like the world because I had a backwards cap on would be going around in tube tops and miniskirts if they weren't in church. Maybe they would. God, I hope not. But the, the reality of it is, I has not seen, neither ear heard, nor hopefully entered into the heart of anybody, how that would work. But the, the reality of it is, I always struggled with what it meant to look or act or talk or be like the world. Because most of what it was was just somebody's opinion, and it was more generational than it was spiritual. It just really was. And that doesn't make a Like seriously, if 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 the, if the newsboys are your jam, bless you. If Mercy Me takes you into the presence of God like none other, God bless you. But I would I I feel like I have an easier time getting into His presence with Bob Marley, and that's just me. Bob Dylan and Bob Marley do more for me than most of the stuff that I find on Christian radio. It's just me. Mom was here cleaning yesterday, and it's funny. She came in the office, and me and Dylan were hanging out while I was, while I was writing the sermon. And it's like, this is true. This is true. And, it, and it's like, if that's your thing, do it. That's fine. But the idea, it became a stick that we could beat people over the head with. Don't. And so when, it, when we talk about that, we should probably define what the world is. The world is a system. The system is, a, is an idea or, a, or a, a, something that tries to get you to conform to a systemic way of being. Primarily the systemic way of being that Jesus and Paul referred to are greed, power, and revenge. Primarily, that's what it's about. Greed vengefulness, you know, payback kind of stuff where uh, somebody did me wrong and, and I, I'm going to quote somebody, I'm not going to say who it is, but if somebody hits me, I hit him back twice as hard. That is the world system. And so what we have to be very careful of, and I'm going to restart the live stream because it's acting a little funky here. Excuse me, please. Um, what we have to be very, very careful of is the idea that as a people who belong to a different society, we are supposed to have a different way of being. And our different way of being is what it means to be spiritual in the midst of the world. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'd like to begin with a very simple question. What is your religion? What is your religion? Uh, to me, that's, that's a very basic, general, simple question. Question. Immediately, we begin to think about what we believe, right? Maybe your immediate answer is Christian. And I'd like to say, if that's the case, just hold on to that for a moment. Just hold on. If your immediate response is what my religion is, is I'm a Christian. I'm a card-carrying Christian. Bless his holy name. Hold on to that. Because I'd like to start with a word that is much, much Older. Orthodoxy is a word that means right teaching. See, what we have to understand is before we really were um, Christians in the way that we now understand, we were orthodox. And to be orthodox is just. A, 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 a right way of teaching. So to be an Orthodox Christian, it was a determination of what is the right teaching that you subscribe to. The wisdom of the Jewish teaching as well as the wisdom excuse me, of our Judo-Christian teaching explains, to quote James, that faith without works is dead. So the question becomes if your religion is your system of belief or faith then isn't the only way to define our religion by our action or our life. Faith without works is dead. So if the question is, what is your religion, and you say orthodoxy or Christendom, it's right teaching, but better said, it's right doing. It's right teaching that brings right doing. Because, frankly, if the idea that James presents is that faith without works is dead, we have to understand that the only way to accurately define what you believe is what you do. And, and without going too deep here, let's just be really honest. If I actually wanted to ask you what your religion was, the easiest thing to do would be to watch video of your life, right? Look at our text messages and our emails and our phone calls and how we talk to people and how we treat people. How do we treat people when we're driving and when we're in the car by ourselves? Because whether you would like to admit it or not, whether I would like to admit it or not, that is your religion. Your religion is what you do. That's what it means. Now, it's based out of what you believe, but faith without works is dead. So what you believe is defined by what you do. to take this to the next step the word orthodoxy or orthopraxy in its original translation means right practice so what that means is right teaching is right practice whatever right teaching we have whatever religion we have and believe can only be known by what we do our life becomes the demonstration of what we believe and i was always taught this is not that far off from how I was brought up in fact I was brought up with an idea that what I was doing was what I believed but most of that was to beat me over the head that I wasn't holy enough most of it was because somehow in between Wednesday night and Sunday morning when I got back to church the preacher found out that I changed the station from Love to X103 Somehow he found out that I turned off the family filter when I watched that PG-13 movie so I could hear him let fly with the four-letter words. Somehow he found out that I had looked at something, done something, thought something, said something. And so those things became you're not to do this, you're to be holy. What I'm actually talking about is making the majors that Jesus majored on what we major on. You know what he majored on? Actually take it all the way through the Bible and the two most important themes of the Bible of what God was always trying to establish in a fidelity uh, of people was right love of God, right love of people. Jesus said when they asked him what the most important commandment is, love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like the first. And all of the law and the prophets, the entire New Testament, he says, is seen through that lens how you love God and how you love people. In fact, some scholars have actually suggested that how you love God is only measurable by how you love people. How you love God is only measurable in this life by how you love people. That's kind of messed up because sometimes I don't love people very well. Remember that guy I told you about when I walk in the door at work and I'd rather punch him than talk to him? Sometimes I don't love him so well. But at that moment, if you were to ask me, do you love God? Oh, God, I do love him. How you love God is only measured by how we love people. So I'd like to ask a next question. What does it mean to be a Christian? You see, for many of you, immediately when I said, what is your religion? Everybody, not everybody, many of you might have said Christian. I'm a Christian. We check that box when we fill out. The survey. And so we have to start with the understanding that being a Christian was not always the most acceptable thing in the country. Now, contrary to what you might see on the news or Facebook, if that's where you get your news, God. Have mercy on your soul. You are the exception to the rule. Facebook and the news will tell you that as a Christian, you are the exception to the rule meaning that everybody is out to get the Christians. In fact, even Starbucks is trying to take Jesus off of my smoothie cup. Well, I don't need a close-up on Mary delivering Jesus to be reminded of what I feel about the Lord at Christmas. And I'm sorry if I Say this, but the reality of it is, it is rhetoric that is unfounded and untruthful to say that Christianity is under attack in our country. I recently spent a considerable amount of time researching to determine the rise or fall of our faith in the country. And depending on the poll or the purpose for it, the info varies. But what I noticed as a common thread was that there was not a drop in spirituality or belief in God. Even in the polls suggesting a drop in our faith, it showed there was consistency in faith numbers. I have to point out that through the years as our country has become browner, this has affected the stereotypical Protestant evangelical number. So the spiritual faith number has not fallen. The Protestant white evangelical number has. So what we have to understand is that through the years as our country has become browner, that's affected the number. The growth in the Hispanic population has changed the growth in the Catholic count in our country. The growth in the Asian and Middle Eastern population has impacted the Buddhist and Muslim counts. When it started, the title Christian was not the title we even gave ourselves. In fact, Christian was a title that our adversaries gave us. You realize that right now the most acceptable thing for you to be when somebody asks you what your faith is, is you to say Christian. And yet, when it was first given to us, the idea of what it meant to be a Christian was something that the people who were picking on us called us. It's really rare that this happens, but we embraced it. Isn't that weird? Have you ever had a bully give you a bad nickname, like Lumpy? And all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, that's me. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I could have come up with a better one. But whatever it is, you know, and you're like, yep, that's me right here, Lumpy. Um, And so that's the way it worked. So when they first called us Christians, the idea was put upon us by those who were oppressors, not those who were advocates. You find this a little bit in our current uh, culture, but like Quakers is an example. Has anybody ever heard of Quakers? Quakers is a name that was put upon them by those that were mocking them. They didn't one day they were shaking They're like we should be called Quakers, you know. The people who were saw, seeing them shaking and it made them mad. It's like, why well, ain't hanging around with those Quakers? So, Christians were called Christians because at the very beginning, they looked at us in Antioch and in other places and they looked at us and said, You guys are a bunch of little Jesuses. You're obsessed with this Jesus guy. They literally looked at the Christians and said, All you guys ever talk about is being like Jesus. All you guys ever do is, is talk about, I want to be like Jesus was and do what Jesus did and say what Jesus is. Guys are a bunch of little Jesuses, aren't you? So, in reality, the easiest way in our language to define what this looked like, maybe better than Christians, would be to say Jesusites. So they began to call us Jesusites. An interesting thing began to happen in the last 300 years. We saw the emphasis of Christianity begin to adjust focus. You see, for thousands of years, the focus was on the apprenticeship of following Jesus, or what we would call discipleship. And at some point, we begin to see the emphasis on the act of committing our life or the evangelism experience. This led to what is, in my opinion, one of the greatest disasters in Christianity. This is the bifurcation of evangelism and discipleship. The bifurcation of evangelism and discipleship. What that means is where they separated the two things. Where evangelism was one thing, getting somebody saved, and discipleship was another thing. We coax people to accept Jesus into their heart via a magic prayer, usually repeated after me. And then we have to forever try to upsell them on the optional upgrade of actual discipleship. So we spend people's lives. My job as a pastor, I have two jobs. First job is is to tell you you need to invite people to church. So how many times whenever you've been at church do you, before you leave, say, okay, now everybody bring one friend with you to church next Sunday. Have you ever heard that spiel? Right. So, and they specifically would tell you bring one friend who's going to hell because clearly the only place they can repeat after me is here. The magic prayer doesn't work if it's out there. Duh. So they have to come in here to do the magic prayer. So once they get the magic prayer, it becomes the Willy Wonka's golden ticket. So all of a sudden now they are bound for heaven. However, my job then shifts. Now I have a second job. My second job is to spend the rest of our existence together in this community, me trying to forever upsell you on the optional upgrade of actually being like Jesus. This mentality didn't exist until about 300 years ago because in the early church there was no separation between committing to follow jesus and becoming his apprentice there was no separation between committing your heart to follow jesus and then living in that discipleship and so it's very interesting it's become a very in my opinion A dangerous, maybe the most dangerous doctrine. You see, for the first three centuries, there was no distinction between discipleship and evangelism. The announcement was this. The world has a new king, and his name is Jesus. That was the gospel. He has inaugurated a new age in which we welcome the kingdom of this king to the earth. We establish the blueprint shown to us as we learn a new way of life, a new way of living, and a new way of being human. I'm going to say that again. We're learning a new way of life, a new way of being alive, and a new way of being human. The early church, Father Tertullian said, Christians are made, not born. They're developed over time. It's something that it means to, to be a Jesusite is something that's developed over time. It's not something, haven't you ever thought about? As soon as you get saved, everybody's like, woohoo! We throw a party and we're talking about all the angels in heaven are rejoicing. We need to rejoice with them. Are you rejoicing, brother? Realistically speaking, is that person any different? If we're just being honest. Now, yes, I'm not doubting their eternal home. Yes, I'm not doubting that their sins are washed in the blood of the lamb. I'm not doubting that they have, they have made a vocal expression of their commitment to the lifestyle of walking with Jesus and being restored to their creator father. But what I do question is, have they changed at that moment? Or is that what you get to spend the rest of your life doing? The journey of being like Jesus. So I'd like to read a a, a verse to you. And this is a verse that was most frequently used when I was growing up to yell at people. But don't worry, I'm not going to yell at anybody today any more than I already have. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. I think this is on your sheet. now i heard that a lot growing up as a kid in fact this is right in the midst of like one of those great hell passages you know where jesus is all excited because people are going to burn for all eternity that was a joke But it's right in the midst of one of those passages where he's saying, why do you do this and don't do uh, why do you call me, Lord, and don't do what I say? And in fact, in one of the other texts where this Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say is used is the passage where they say, Lord, we've prophesied in your name. We've cast out devils. We've laid hands on the sick and they were recovered all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, but I don't know you. Right. And so that there's a connotation, there's a context to why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So this is the text of the morning. I was very hesitant to use this passage as our text. You see, I've grown up in church, and by and large, this passage is the one preachers use when they want to yell at people. Y'all aren't doing right. I told you last week to bring somebody to church. You didn't bring anybody. Except for Regina. She gets double blessing. The rest of you are three Hail Marys. Right? Right? That's what we do. We yell at people. We say, why do you? Why aren't you doing what, what Jesus says? That's not what we're going to do. I have no intention of using this as a weapon with which to beat you over the head. My entire goal is to focus on being intentional disciples of Jesus, to look at what he modeled to us and told us, and ultimately get to the place where we major on the things he majored on. And finally, as an aside, to warn against what he calls the leaven of the Pharisees, The hypocrisy where we have made it a form to follow rather than an invitation to know. The leaven of the Pharisees, religious dogma that says it is a form to follow, not an invitation to know. And also the leaven of Herod that Jesus calls, which is the political system. Beware of politicians and preachers ...who flaunt their Christianity in order to hijack Jesus as an endorsement for their particular agenda. Especially when it becomes obvious they have no intention of paying any real attention to what Jesus actually said. This is a particularly dangerous trap in today's evangelical conservative climate. I told you I was listening to Dylan yesterday, so you should just kind of be prepared that you know we're going to talk about preachers and politicians... The passage is drawn from the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Matthew, you might know, has the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has the Sermon on the Plain. There are a few distinctions between these sermons, not the least of which is that Matthew's sermon is given on top of a mountain while Luke's is given on a plane. See, you didn't see that coming, did you? Luke's version is preached on this mountain, uh, excuse me, not on this mountaintop, but on this plain, and it is preached to a great crowd. Matthew's version, the Sermon on the Mount, is preached to the disciples. The Bible says that Jesus then came down from the mountaintop, and he gave a sermon that was similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but not only was it given to multitudes, but it was also, uh, he, he pulled little pieces out of it. It wasn't entirely complete. There's a few things that are different. And in my opinion, Luke's version has a little bit sharper edge for example, when it includes while it includes them, it doesn't just start with the Beatitudes. It also starts with the woe-tos. So blessed are ye when you do this, and also woe are you, woe to you when you do these things. There's an edginess that's there. The order of events is this Jesus has just come down from the mountain from sharing with the disciples. He's healed somebody on the Sabbath just to offend the religious leaders that were there. He goes alone to pray, because uh, let me just make this as a side note. So the context is this. He gives the disciples a message. He comes down the mountain. He heals somebody intentionally on the Sabbath, just to tick people off. And then he goes alone to pray. As soon as our overturning of religious tables isn't buried and covered, in secret time prayer with him, we're just being rebellious for rebellion's sake. As soon as our, our intentions become morphed, if we aren't still coming before him and spending time to see from his perspective. So Jesus follows this This riling up of the religious leaders by going alone to pray. He comes down a little bit further and begins the sermon to this crowd of people. And in verse 27, Jesus begins to get into the sermon on discipleship. Let's read that together. I'm going to give you a few high points. This is from the um, Passion Translation. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to them that hate you. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that mistreat you. And if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If somebody takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. We know this is the golden rule. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, to what credit is that? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect payment, what credit is that? Even the sinners do that. But love your enemies. He repeats it again. Do good to them. Lend to them. Now, once again, he's now reframed it. So he's actually saying to lend to your enemies. Like, okay, I can love them from the distance, but I ain't giving them 15 bucks. but I ain't buying him a cup of coffee. Well, maybe if it's really hot, he'll burn his lip. (laughs) I'm going to loosen the lid a little bit before I hand it to him, see how that works out. (laughs) Love your enemies and give to them without concern for repayment. Then your reward will be great because you will resemble... High, He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. I'm going to say that again because that's good. God's kindness is towards the wicked. Be merciful as your father is merciful. This passage tells us clearly that love your enemies is the crux of what it meant to follow Jesus. In fact, through the early church. This was the most common message preached. It, this message of love your enemies is so radical, so extreme, demanding and difficult and yet it's so definitively Christian. In many ways I'm sure everybody was listening to him when he said love your enemies are like that's so Jesus. That's just so Jesus. That's how definitively Christian this was. To It's what Jesus does with his life. Instead of launching a war with the occupying Romans, who were their, their enemies, the, the enemies of the Hebrew people, which, by the way, was what, lit, what literally everybody expected the Messiah to do. I'm going to say that again. Instead of launching a war with the occupying Romans, which is what everybody expected Jesus to do. It's the only thing that all the Jews agreed upon. Did you know that it's the only thing that all the Jews agreed upon was that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to launch a war to overtake Rome. The only thing that they agreed upon, I mean, everyone agreed upon the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, Jesus, Mother Mary, the disciples and John the Baptist all agreed that the one thing the Messiah was going to do is launch a war of liberation against the Romans. He was coming as a general of war, not a prince of peace. But he doesn't do that. He preaches love of enemy and lives it to the extreme so that finally when he endures Roman crucifixion, he doesn't cry out for revenge. He prays for them. He lives out this sermon of loving and forgiving to the end. This verse changes literally everything. It became the most quoted verse by the early church fathers in the writings. It is almost as if it became a litmus test for discipleship in the orthodox face of faith of Christianity. Literally, love your enemies became the litmus test of if you were a believer or not. Throughout the book of Acts and all the early church writings we can find, it is the most preached sermon. Do you know why? Because it was that radical. And they said, if people will do this, they're in the group. It was the litmus test. It was the most talked about thing because there were so many other things that united everybody else. The only thing that united them is love your enemies. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees loved your neighbor, the Christians love their enemy. That's the point. Do they love and bless their enemies? This was the case for early Christianity until Constantine. Because once you have a so-called Christian empire, the church has become the chaplain of this empire. And their task is to bless waging war and protecting greed, not loving enemy. Until the day of Constantine, when all of a sudden Constantine decided, okay, we're all going to be Christians now. This is now the government religion. The number one thing that united them was loving their enemies. But it's a little hard to love and bless your enemies when the government's telling you to go to war and kill everybody who's not like you. So the church had to sanction and bless this type of activity. Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? But the exact thing he's just told them to do is to love their enemy. The thing he says. So he says to them, why do you call me Lord, and yet you don't do what I tell you? But the thing he's actually just told them is love your enemy. And while I understand This is a rhetorical device. What if we take it as an actual question? Why do we need to love our enemy? Why is it important that we would think this way? Why would he want us? Why would this be the thing? Why would this be the test? Why would this be the thought? It's that very simple thing that says, are you willing to lose your life to find it? Because quite frankly, the reason we wouldn't is because we're afraid. You see, what happens is when we look at this verse, in fact, uh, I, I spent my entire life, this wasn't an important verse, I'll just be honest with you, until about three years ago, this was not an important verse for me. I knew Love Your Enemies was in there. I knew Jesus said it, but it really wasn't a big deal to me. And it wasn't like I was, I, I was going around hating people. I had, I, I, didn't, I had never shot somebody. I had never like, retaliated, and I wasn't vengeful. But just to be honest with you, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. My thought was, well, if I just get close to God, then that's going to automatically happen. Well, the challenge is you can get close to God and far from people at the same time. You can get really comfortable with you and Jesus behind closed doors and really uncomfortable with you and everybody else outside of them. And so what I somehow did, and maybe you've done this and maybe you've not, maybe you have this mastered, but what I did for myself was I had all these exceptions. And I had all of these thoughts about love your enemies and bless them and give to them with no thought of them giving back. And in fact, when I thought about, Lord, Lord, why do you call me that and don't do what I say? I I immediately begin to measure all the things that I did do. I prayed two or three hours a day. I studied the Bible. I cared for people. I, I, I did all these things. But in reality, all of those were just me trying to find the exceptions exemption. And maybe you do that. As soon as you hear, love your enemies and bless them, maybe your immediate thought is to start running with, yeah, but here's the exception. Here's why this person's exempt from this. Here's maybe why this one doesn't really count. And the simple reason why we do that is we're afraid. We're just afraid. We're afraid that if we love real enemies, real bad people, who want to hurt us, they will take advantage of us. Every time we read these passages, we immediately begin to rationalize. We immediately begin to kind of set them on the side, because we're afraid. How can I love somebody who wants to hurt me? I'm afraid of what the repercussions of this action might be. And at some point, we might actually have become better at defining what love your enemies doesn't mean than what it does mean what does it mean we love Jesus he's our Lord and Savior but then there's this other thing you see if we're honest most of us think his ideas about how we should live in the world are entirely impractical if we're honest most of us believe that Jesus's ideas about how we should navigate this life are very impractical. And we kind of go, "Yep, yeah, yeah, that's Jesus. But, but to think of it in reality, real people, real situations, that's a lot more difficult. And we ultimately come back with the idea of love my enemies. That just seems impractical. Then we start using devices to escape the reality of this command. Because in our culture, the word enemy is very hard to define. And I'll give you that. It's, it was much easier at that moment to define the enemy of the Jewish people than it is right now. The enemy of the Jewish people was all around them. It was the Romans. I mean, they were very, very, very apparent. And for us, it may be harder to define who our enemy is. This is very true. Maybe I can suggest two lenses to view this through. You see, one of the early translations of the word enemy is one you love of the word enemy is one that you love less. So compare it to the ones that you love well, and if you love them less than that, they might fall into this category of your enemy. One of the early, other early translations for enemy is one that you fear. But both point back to the central focus, and this roadblock for this radical, theology and the radical theology the roadblock for this radical theology is singular fear whether it is another religion facebook by the way if you haven't noticed is now telling you sharia law is getting ready to take over Coatesville. i saw this the other day that apparently sharia law in fact there's a website called CreepingShariaLaw.com, law.com uh which immediately i'm like oh yeah that's pretty much NBC," as far as credibility goes and but they're saying that sharia law is coming i had somebody tell me the other day that they're petri they're afraid to leave their house because of isis isis now i i know that there are sleeper cells but i really don't think greencastle's on the map i'm just thinking like in reality that Sharia law and ISIS are probably not things that God wants me to be fearful of. But that's what people tell you. And so there are all kinds of things that fear become the roadblock to love your enemy, whether it's another religion, another way of life, terrorist attacks, or the possibility of another financial collapse. The fear looms behind the curtain of the unknown. And there are only two subjects found within the Sermon of Jesus – Within this sermon that Jesus gives, there's only two subjects, violence and money. This is where we get real. If you expand it to a larger scale, it becomes something broader. War and greed. Or greed and the protection of our greed. This is what allows us to endorse systems of redemptive violence to protect us. This is systemic. This is not a you thing. This is an us thing. This is the world system that the kingdom of God called us out of. A, king, a kingdom that says, I need to, I, I'm in fear that I might be in lack. And what if the financial uh, market crashes? What if the stock market goes down again? What if 08 happens all over again? So I can't give to people who are in need and who are less fortunate than I am because I might need it sometime." And then if we feel like people are threatening my way of life, my way of being, the systems that I have in place, then what happens is it begins to sanction war to protect what I have, violence to protect what I have. Jesus' sermon, the one of two sermons, in fact, the only common theme between both sermons of Jesus are him speaking against greed and violence to protect greed. says is that we have to check out from that way of being, that we have to check out from a way of being that says, I will take care of somebody else as long as I'm taken care of, that where we have monetary amounts in our bank account where you say, well, you know, we feel like God wants us to give to somebody, but we say, well, you know, I don't really have enough of a cushion and I might have some stuff come up and where we have things in our mind. Where we think, well, you know, this thing over here, I've got to really keep an eye on that. Let me tell you this. If the way you see the world right now is getting darker, you don't see it how he sees it. Because you're looking at the wrong system. Grace more than abounds. Even though darkness seems to abound, grace more than abounds. And God is not waiting on evil to get bad enough to do whatever he's going to do. The arc throughout the entire Bible is the kingdom coming. And as we live more and more and more and more like it's here, guess what? It is. As we live like his kingdom is here, it is. So within this idea It's not a a me thing. It's not a critical thing to me. It's an us thing. It's a cultural thing. Not because any of us are bad people. We're just afraid. But instead of coming up with clever ways to say what Jesus didn't mean when he said, love your enemies, we should just simply say, Jesus, I'm afraid. There's humility in that. You must remember that he is kind and gentle with us. The only ones he's ever harsh with are the self-righteous hypocrites that think they have it all figured out in the first place. But to the humble, the vulnerable, and those that surrender, he simply says, don't worry, peace be still. The other thing that I would encourage you to do is stay present. When he says peace, do not fear, don't let your mind rest. When your father whispers to your heart and says, don't be afraid, be there with him in the absence of fear, which is his love, not in the future, which is the possibility of failure, the possibility of of risk, the possibility of attack, the possibility of of everything falling apart, because there is nothing there that's going to help you here. As soon as your mind runs to there, you you simply can say no. I'm going to be here with the Lord because he says, I don't have to be afraid. And as soon as you can be there in the absence of fear, in that place, you can love your enemies. In that place, you can bless your enemies. And in that place, you can actually be as radical as to give to people who want to harm you with no much you love me and i know i feel your love help me to do that well to others and also avoid the fear mongers preachers and politicians and angry fearful people don't listen to the rhetoric and the intoxicating doctrine that says the day is dark jesus says if you say the day is dark it's because your eye is dark he says if you call the day dark it's because your eye is dark says is instead be filled with light walk with those who live in faith hope and most importantly love drink deeply of the perfect love that casts out all fear this is the fruit of life this is what it means because believe me when i tell you there's freedom in this like no other because as you're free from fear. Well, let me back up. As you embrace his love, perfect love casts out fear. As you embrace his love, you are immediately um, um, relinquishing and letting go of fear. And then in perfect love, you can love well. Love your enemies. And I, I love quickly. Um, I, I just want to mention there's two other verses on your sheet and we're going to mention this as we close. Jesus said in verse uh, 37 of Luke chapter 6, same sermon, same context. Forsake the habit of criticizing and judging others, and you will not be criticized and judged in return. Don't look at others and pronounce them guilty, and you will not experience guilty accusations yourself. Forgive one time. Is that what it says? Forgive once. Over You need it. You need to let go of those things. And if you do that, abundant gifts will be poured out. And I love that he says this because how many times as we close, how many times have have you been told uh, or heard people when they condemn you and judge you? Well, I'm just judging your fruit. You ever heard anything like that? It's amazing to me how many botanists there are in the faith because these guys are walking around judging fruit like it's their job. I'm amazed that they actually have time to seek the Lord on their own because they're so busy looking at what fruit I have. And so I've regularly had people um, tell me, in fact, I had one guy, this is one of my favorites, one time he actually told me that, um, that my tattoos were indicative of my evil heart. And I said, really? And he said, yep, sometimes you don't have to look past the skin to see the fruit. What? Did you just actually insinuate I should get tattoos on the inside of my body? I'm really confused about what you're implying. But that idea of of judge the fruit, I'm just judging the fruit, brother. I'm just judging the fruit, sister. Well, that thing is something that is so twisted and so warped because Jesus, when he said judge the fruit, he's just got done telling us forsake the habit of criticizing and judging others. So when he says judge the fruit, whose fruit are you supposed to be judging? Yours. Yours. fruit hanging on a bad tree verse 43 and rotten fruit doesn't hang on a good healthy tree every tree will be revealed by the quality of fruit that it produces figs and grapes will not be coming off of thorn trees people are known this same way in the in the uh, passion translation when you look at the heading of uh, verse 43 of Luke 6 it's called the fruit of life I encourage all of us to eat of life the fruit of life that comes from from forsaking away that is condemning and judging of others a fruit of life that is forsaking of a, a system that says if somebody does something to you, you need to be getting a plan together of how to get, your, get them back for it. A plan that, uh, that would say, I need to be, be figuring out how to either protect myself or revenge or this or that. The, 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 the forsaking of a way of life that would say, I need to worry about me and mine. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless them give to them freely. And if we're not, he looks at each of us, and I think he looks at us as a society and says, "Why do you call me Lord?" We started with the fact that we are the most Christian nation on the face of the planet. But why do we call him Lord and not do what he says? I think it's time that we merge our evangelism And I think it's time that we actually define what our religion is by what we do. Not what we think, not what we believe, not what will get us to heaven, but what we do. So, Father, we thank you for the message of Jesus. We thank you that because of this incredible and life-giving message that we have the opportunity to live In fruitfulness, to live in the fullness of who you are, to live in this love. And we also recognize that clearly you have given us a new commandment. John 13 says the the new commandment that you've given us is that we would love each other the same way that you love us. Father, help us to do that. And when it says each other, help us to understand that that just means those that have the common being of being created in the image of God. That's everybody. Help us to love everyone well, like you. Help us not to be those that 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 are ignorant of what's going on around us. But father, help us to be those who also aren't driven by what politicians and preachers with ulterior motives would try to get us to believe out of their fear mongering and condemning and divisive rhetorical language that does nothing but become a dog whistle to terror. And father, we reject fear and we embrace your love. We reject fear and we embrace your love. And we say thank you. Thank you that we can love well because you did it first. And we bless right now in our heart. We bless our enemies. Those that come to our mind that have maybe done things to us that are wrong, have lied about us, who've mistreated us, who've done anything against us, anyone in our heart that, that either maybe they're other than us and would cause us to be fearful, or maybe they've just done things to us that would cause us to be offended and bitter and hurt and angry. Father, we say that we bless them and we love them. Help us to love them well as you love us well. In Jesus' name we pray thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church for more information find us online at harvesthouse.blog.